1: Close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to The Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to The Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Ian Gibbs, And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun is set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, May 2nd. This is episode 8. And we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian?
2: I'm doing well. I'm feeling a lot better than I was. You look a lot better. Yeah, well, I'm getting sleep and don't feel like I'm trapped in an iron lung, so that's very helpful. Uh, you started doing interviews for your book now. I did. It's all very real. I've done an interview on CBC, which is a big deal here in Canada, and I did uh, one on French Canadian radio, and they, oh. called, yeah, they called me, and said, would you do this? And I'm like, I don't speak French. Uh, apparently, I could do it in English. I'm all good. Uh, and then um, a local radio station here, CFAX, is kind of a news talk radio. I did 40 minutes on there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It, it seemed to go pretty well. No, I, I heard that. It was,
1: uh, I, I liked that part, uh, where you told the story about the ghost.
2: You didn't listen. I did. You were great. That lady had great questions. <laughs> it was a man. His name was Ryan and you're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling better, but you look worse. What's going on? You look all kind of Frankenstein.
1: Oh yeah. I, uh, I hurt myself at the gym. I was, I was, Doing these dumbbell rows and uh, <laughs> figures. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. That's one dad joke. That's all you get. Oh Jesus! I know. Full quota. <laughs> Be a lot of editing this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, I was doing these dumbbell rows and I just had my head turned a little bit to the side and it was it was a hundred and five pound dumbbell. So it's you have to pay attention while you're lifting that yeah, kind of weight. Sure. And I was being an idiot, not not really paying attention to what my body was doing. And I just felt this tweak in my neck. And immediately dropped the weight and went, yeah. And I stood up and I walked around and I, I couldn't turn my head at all to the right. Wow, uh, I could turn it about I don't know, maybe fifteen degrees to the left. And I thought, oh man, I've crippled myself. You well, know, I th- and, and how are you going to drive home? Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. How the hell am I going to drive home? Because this is eleven thirty at night, right? And my gym oh, is man. you know a ten minute drive from my house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I was, oh god, I was wandering around looking like a forlorn child. <laughs> You know, giant going, born child. <laughs> it's a pituitary condition. Yeah, Don't you feel bad now?
2: Mommy feeds me love.
1: <laughs> no, that sounds, don't ever say that again. I meant pizza. But I'm oh, sorry. trying to recover, trying to recover. Bring it back to center. Ooh, And scene. Yeah, finally, I managed to stretch it out enough. I could turn my head, you know, enough to the right. To, to to you know shoulder check mostly, yeah. and thankfully it's eleven thirty nine Victoria. There's no <laughs> one around anyway. <laughs> That's right. but yeah, no, it was a real drag. And, and I have this sort of uh, this this long history of her, of doing this to myself. You know, like year before last or no last year, I was double shifting, going to the gym a lot. You yeah. know, and I, my body started doing this thing. When I was so tired, I would just turn off. Oh wow! Yeah, I'd never known that that was possible. I would just I'd like be power down. Oh yeah! And what did like what, what happened? You just fall asleep? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would be. What there was one time I was uh, I was about to do the bench press. I was lying back on the bench, and I thought, oh, I feel funny. And I just had my arms on the bar, and I thought maybe not just yet because something doesn't feel. And I just dozed off. Just for a second. Holy cat. Yeah, yeah. That's like narcolepsy. Pretty much, yeah. 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 It was it was not fun. I mean, I got the best sleep of my life. But, yeah, I bet. But on the bench at the gym. Yeah, and which, then
2: they asked you to leave and it was all uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah I started masturbating. <laughs> you woke up with an A D attached to your chest. <laughs> That's right. They just assumed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh so I, I go into the gym and I just done my... My my uh max personal record for for leg
2: press, which was nine hundred pounds. Right. I was very impressed with myself. And how did you end up weighing nine hundred pounds? Was that like a conscious choice, or were you living in a trailer?
1: <laughs> well, I was on a TV show for TLC, <laughs> and then uh, then you know I lost the weight actually by playing this game called Hide and Go f- Yourself. <laughs> I don't know that game. Well, no, not, not what I hear. Not what I hear. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I I did a a single rep of that again, feeling very happy with myself. But then I saw some guy do 1100 and I thought, okay, never mind.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right? I hope you ran him over with your car while you couldn't (laughs) see. Blame it on your neck. Oh, I didn't see him. I crapped in his gym bag. (laughs) left notes that Ian Gibbs did this. (laughs) And a copy
1: of my book. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, whatever gets it out there. (laughs) I also left my number and said, read it, tell me what it's like. (laughs) (laughs) Give me five salient points. (laughs) That's right. I can work into a conversation. Anyways, I went to go do it again another and I was so tired I wasn't paying attention and it's a one rep max for a reason right I was just I drifted and I I did it twice and I did it a third time and then I just felt Uh, something go tweak in my knee no yeah so I still am coming back from that was a year a little over a year ago now I'm still kind of coming back from that I can lift about. Well, it doesn't matter. I, I I'm I'm getting back up there. It's just I right. I think my days of 900 pound leg lifts are over. Mm, my my old man knees Your are old man not going to do it. And then now that I've you know crippled myself again. Yes. I, I I can't even. It's better than it was. Thank God. Yeah. But I I still can't turn to the left without moving my entire upper body. I look like Michael Keaton in the first Batman movie.
2: <laughs> so the limbo contest we're not doing that
1: now. we no. The limbo contest is officially canceled. <laughs>
2: okay. Good to know.
1: It would have been anyways, but this is a better reason. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so moving on from our aging mortal husks to something <laughs> far more interesting. Uh, we have another guest this week. We do. And on a really interesting subject too. I'm, I'm. Uh, it was an interesting read. Yeah, our guest this week is Lloyd Auerbach, author of Psychic Dreaming. This is a re-release of a book that Lloyd originally published in 1991. And he was a really fascinating guy, very generous with his time. Nice. And uh, we're going to cut to that now. So, uh, when we come back from the break, you'll hear Lloyd Auerbach. And when you come back after that, you'll be back in our loving arms. Yay! Well, I kill the mood.
3: <laughs> we'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to The Ghost Story, guys. I'm here with our guest, renowned paranormal expert and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach. Lloyd is on the board of directors for the Ryan Research Center and since 2013 has been the president of the Forever Family Foundation, an organization supporting research on life after death and the work of spirit mediums in the grieving process. He has authored and co-authored a total of nine books on the subject of the paranormal and is here today to talk to us about the revised edition of his 1991 bestseller, Psychic Dreaming, now available from Llewellyn. Thanks for being here with us, Lloyd. Oh,
3: you're very welcome.
1: So I'm really curious. You've been professionally involved with the world of the paranormal for a very long time now, decades. Do you mind telling me a little bit about what put you on that path?
3: Well, you know, it's really been an interest since I was a little kid. I mean, literally since I was a little kid. I was very, very much a TV baby. My dad worked for NBC and I had a TV set in my room when I was two. I was watching, even early early on, watching The Twilight Zone and One Step Beyond and Topper and other things that had a paranormal theme to them, and got into reading comic books and science fiction, and that just simply combined with uh, my interest in science, I discovered that there actually was a field of science called parapsychology. I discovered that very, very young and had teachers who encouraged me in high school, and it just kind of coalesced, came together, and timing-wise just put me on the path. But it was not because of any sort of psychic experience. It was partly because this was... Kind of the human superpowers, and that's the science, the uh, the comic book and science fiction thing.
1: Of course, right, and I guess that leads to a, a question I was going to speak about later. But I, I am curious: Do you think this kind of thing, for example, uh, I hesitate to say psychic powers, but we'll say psychic sensitivity? Do you think that's that's something that is innate or something that can be trained?
3: Um, we can bring it out. I mean, everybody is a little bit psychic, especially as kids, and it's just a matter sometimes of finding out what you're good at psychically. I, I certainly had have had psychic experiences, and I've had ways that I can kind of bring it out for myself from time to time. I just haven't really focused on that because my interest has been kind of outside that, looking at what's going on as opposed to having the experiences all the time myself. But it is something we can really, once we figure out what kind of experiences we have and where our talents kind of lie, it's kind of like figuring out your musical talent or artistic ability. Uh, you got to figure out what you're good at, and then you can really bring it out at that point.
1: I find that very interesting because it seems as though many people in this field are chasing that veridical experience which will uh, show to them that it's all real. And so it's it's fascinating for me to hear from someone who is not particularly concerned with that necessarily. They're they're not looking for that personal experience.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, most people in the field of parapsychology did not get into it because of a personal experience. We're all very just curious about the frontiers of human experience, but also about human potential, because what these experiences say, beside the fact that they're not being looked at by mainstream science, which leaves this huge hole in understanding humanity, uh, but they say that there's a lot more to human beings than what mainstream science seems to think. And this is an area that that question really kind of drives a lot of us for looking at what's going on. I mean, having an experience doesn't hurt, but it's a rare person who gets into the field because of their experiences.
1: So on that subject, early on in the book, you describe research into psi as having stagnated around the time you wrote, which was, of course, in the around 1999-1991. 1990, uh, can you help me understand what you mean by psi exactly? And then I'm curious to know whether that has changed, whether we have uh, improved our game as far as our, our research into the scientific aspects of what we call the paranormal.
3: Sure. Well, psi is, just, is the 23rd letter of the Greek alphabet. It, is, it was chosen by J.B. Ryan back in the 1930s. He, he started the first big American uh, parapsychology laboratory, which continues as the Rhine Research Center today. But it was chosen because it represents psyche or the mind. And it was used as kind of a generic or non-emotional, non-charged, uh, non baggage term to cover extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. Uh, but also to cover anything related to those experiences and to consciousness experiences where we're connecting with things outside our body, or even the idea of consciousness surviving the death of the body, which is where you get to ghosts and reincarnation and things like that. So those are all psi phenomena or psi experiences. Research in psi, it, it hasn't increased, unfortunately, across the board's in the U.S. or even around the world, with the exception, perhaps, of places like Brazil, because there have been more and more people getting involved in scientific research down there. It's a lot more open academically to do that. The problem in the U.S. is our academics are incredibly
1: prejudiced. Prejudiced against the, the, even the possibility of...
3: Against of... even the... They're not even open to the possibility. And part of that's the academic climate, and a part of that is thanks to the organized skeptics movement. Uh, PSYCOP, the predecessor of the Center for Scientific Inquiry today, but the skeptics movement over since the 70s, has made it unfriendly for any academic to even admit that they're interested in this let alone that they might want to do research in it.
1: My assumption had been that it was uh, perhaps a growing uh, growing evangelical sentiment that was behind that. Rather, so it's fascinating to me that, that skepticism is is actually the thing stagnating
3: development. Yeah, there. It, I haven't seen, I don't think any of us have really seen that it's been the religious movement in any way, shape, or form, except maybe on an individual basis with psychics and certain individuals, but it, it ha- certainly has not affected or impacted research at all. It's been the skeptics.
1: That is so interesting. Skepticism stifling intellectual development seems counterproductive somehow. But
3: but you know um, a few years ago, I think it was twenty eleven. Daryl Bem published an article in the Journal of Personality Studies, which is a major psychology journal. And the and the when the article the the upcoming journal issue was announced, and his article, which was on a precognition study done over a two year period at Cornell University, when that was announced that it was going to be in the journal, there was this incredible hue and cry across mainstream science pretty much you know, yelling at the journal, how dare you even consider publishing something like this? And it was from people in a variety of areas of science. Some of them were very big names. And it was interesting if you looked at the interview, some of the reporters actually asked the question, have you read the study? And the response was typically, why would I? Oh, boy. And that's about as unscientific. I mean, they didn't even know that Daryl, whether Daryl had positive or negative results.
1: I subscribe to a number of atheist podcasts. I've I've seen that attitude, and, and it's fascinating how they will so quickly refute a study or uh, a claim without any evidence, or, or really with only superficial evidence to the contrary.
3: Yeah, I mean, they, they don't read any, they will not read any of the, the mainstream, the mainstream folks generally won't read any of our journal articles. Uh, it's And when they do, there are a few who have been cajoled into it or uh, talked into it by some of my colleagues, like Ed May, and when they do, they're shocked at how how quality-oriented our research is, how well-controlled it is. And they still don't necessarily agree with the outcome in terms of the interpretation of the results, but they don't quibble about the actual results. So it's really about a preconceived prejudice, a bias that people have, which, frankly, is as dogmatic and fundamentalist in science as it is on the religious side.
1: The work that you do with the Rhine Research Center, is that sort of, I suppose, that, that exists in spite of this, this prevailing climate? Do you guys, you are working on, on research into science still?
3: Yeah, there is, there is some research that goes on at the Rhine Center. They have a couple of projects. One is a kind of bioenergy lab where they are looking at biophotons. We, you know, we give off very, very few photons of light from our brains, from our heads and they are detectable in the right conditions. And they're working with healers and martial artists and some other folks to see if they can, while they're doing their thing, whether they're producing an increase in biophoton emission. And so far, the indication is they can. So that's a really interesting thing. They're also doing some other ESP research and looking at a project long-term in out-of-body experiences as well. Um, But the Rhine Center is, is as much an educational center as anything else. They're kind of a resource for a lot of folks. They sponsor a number of lectures that have been going on for several years, and there is video and audio in in the media library, which people can get if they join the the organization. And we have an education center, which offers online courses. So, for example, on May 10th, I'm doing the first of the live webinars for an introduction to parapsychology course. It's an eight-week course. Uh, People can listen live, or they they can actually just watch the recordings we have students all over the world in different time zones. So I'm, um, it's, it's just, we offer a lot of different things and the funding for the Rhine center has been terrible. I mean, the funding for, A couple of the research projects has been good, but the funding for parapsychology is almost non-existent. And the Ryan Center is constantly struggling. They've had to kind of cut down back on the number of personnel in terms of their hours and such. And at the moment, we're doing – we decided – since I'm on the board of directors, the board of directors decided to try something brand new, which is we have a project called Psychics for Psychic Research. And we have a GoFundMe campaign to to come up with the seed money so that we can bring in some of the top remote viewers to do a fundraising project where they're going to use their associative remote viewing for investment. There have been very successful projects in the past on that that have done very well. And so we're trying to do it now with the Ryan Center. We have a little bit of seed money ourselves, but we're trying to raise some through the GoFundMe campaign as well. There's also a raffle that the wine center is doing, which has got a couple of really great prizes. In fact, I got to pick up a ticket myself. I think I find out about that <laughs> because there's like you know one of the one I'm just looking at it right now. There's a week for two at a house in the heart of the wine country in Tuscany, Italy, and then a weekend in West Palm Beach, and then readings from psychics and a whole bunch of other things too. So yeah, they've had some donations of some hard things, not cash per se, right? Uh, but it. it but it, they're all going to support the Rhine Center.
1: I, I am Great. curious. Who is considered a, a leading remote viewer right now?
3: One of our board members is Joseph McMonagall. Oh, okay. Joe McMonigle. yeah. Joe was, of course, the Army's number one viewer for the Stargate program. But uh, Paul Smith has also been connected. Has also taught a course for the Rhine Center as well. So
1: I believe it was uh, McMonigle who described in an interview that he was told by someone in the one of the overseeing bodies that he was doing the devil's work.
3: You know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that happens from time to time. Yeah. I think politics is the devil's work anyway. So. <laughs> pot calling the kettle black.
1: <laughs> so true. All right. So uh, moving on to the book, I'm curious. So, of course, uh, Psychic Dreaming was originally released in 1991. Why have you chosen now to release a revised edition?
3: Well, the um, timing was right for a couple of my older books, which have been out of print. Uh, had a lot of people interested in it, in them, and Llewellyn Publishing got really interested in that particular book, so we revised the book for them specifically. And it, it just, it's a topic I've already co-taught a course on dreams and altered states at the Rhine Center, and there's a couple of courses we have coming up, one by me and one by someone else um, over the next year in this. And people more and more just are talking about their psychic dreams. And of course, we had some really interesting things happen around, 20, around uh, 9-11 and even before that.
1: Right. Has there been any other indications of psychic dreaming associated with with more modern, uh, say, disasters uh, like a, a recent election, for example, or any other uh, you know horrific event that that's uh, changed the way the world operates?
3: Well, one of the things that has to happen is people have to write in their dreams, they have to send them in, and the Rhine Center and a few other places have been getting reports of those things. And there's still some analysis going on. You know, one of the problems, however is that people will have dreams of the world going to hell at this point in time you know not literally but because of climate of fear that's been generated in and around the media and in politics it's it's hard to separate sometimes out the just pure emotional reaction dreams from ones that are psychic so one of the things that we consider when people have these dreams and they write them in or talk to folks in my field about them is how did you know that this was a psychic dream? And if they talk about the content versus the feeling, then we know it's probably not a psychic dream, unless they can be very specific in what's coming up. For the most part, it's really interesting. People who've had psychic dreams, whether they were of disasters or just really mundane stuff? Because most people have psychic dreams, precognitive dreams that are very mundane. They have nothing to do with anything major, even in their lives. And it might just be that they're going to go to work the next day and their boss is going to be wearing this new tie that they've never seen before. And lo and behold, there's that tie on their boss. So that's about it. That's the extent of the entire precognitive dream. So not emotional, not exciting. Just those are the kind of normal things. But what's different about these dreams is what people that I've interviewed and others have interviewed, is that the dream, when they woke up, the dream felt different. It seemed different. It was realer than real. I mean, those are things that we hear about here all the time. And I've talked to people who've had dreams of of, you know, issues politically and otherwise, and they don't have that sense. The dream was about something negative going to happen, but they had no sense that it was any different than any other dream.
1: Right. I understand there's no sense that the dream is the same way. Not special. Right. I I understand. I've I've had dreams like that, where you wake up and you think that wasn't just a dream. That dream has a very particular power. Right. Exactly. Fascinating. So I'm actually really curious about that because, uh, I know in the chapter dreams of days past, you touch on reliving past life experiences through dreams, uh, with an eye toward learning lessons from them. And I was just curious. and, And of course this ties into what you're saying. How do people tease apart these dreams from other dreams, you know, that say, is it the same thing? Is there a sense that this is more or, or is there a, a more definite way to, to mark that difference?
3: Well, probably with the, with the reincarnation or past life dreams, those are probably the most difficult to determine or act, have any sort of sense of reality or in actuality relate to an actual past life. Uh, partly because the the past life story, the other, or the story of you being a pirate, and you know, the dream doesn't have like a flashing, this is your past life at the top of it, of course. Yeah, you just dream about being a pirate, or or you dream about being someone in colonial America or something like that. And the problem here is it may feel impactful, but again, you have to ask whether it felt realer than real that's number one, uh, whether it had any metaphor in it because generally psychic dreams have less metaphor than others, even though they may not have complete pictures, and finally. Whether the dream was actually of a past life or not, it probably is telling you something about your, from your unconscious. And when people are regressed in hypnosis, in parapsychology, we don't consider hypnotic regression a good tool for finding out information about past lives at all. Because the very suggestion by the hypnotist that you've had a past life will cause you to have a past life uh, creation. Your unconscious will create one. And it often reflects some issues going on in your life. So it's great therapeutically, but from a verifiable perspective, it's not so good. That's why we were actually, when we're doing research with reincarnation, we tend in the field to work with kids who who are not exposed to other information. They're like two, three years old. They're extensively remembering past lives, some of which can actually... Um, lead to addresses, names, very, very specific information.
1: It's interesting for me to hear that this is uh, also happening in Western culture because typically when I read about past life cases, it's in places where Mm -hmm. past lives are considered uh, sort of a, they're more culturally accepted, say for example, in India. So this is definitely something that's happening in the West.
3: It is. We probably don't get as many case reports as we possibly could, and in fact, it's likely that some of those cases we hear about in the news, where a child was exorcised or had, you know, some demon hunter get, you know, do some oh. sort of ritual on them, right. and sometimes they end up getting hurt seriously. Uh, the kid might have actually been talking about a past life, and might have had nothing to do with possession whatsoever. There's also the issue of parents not wanting their kids to possibly talk about them because if the kid talks about it in school, given that it's not that accepted, the child may be seen as kind of an outcast, weird, strange, or kind of targeted by bullies. So there there are some real cultural downplays here. However, there's some really good cases. There was the one with the Leininger family. In the book, Soul Survivor, and this was a kid who remembered being a World War II pilot and had so much information uh, that his father, who was a fundamentalist Christian, uh, really followed up on it. I mean, got to give him a lot of credit for paying attention because of the information that was there and really following it to its conclusion.
1: So are we any close to understanding uh, the mechanisms of, of how these things work You know, for cognitive dreams, uh, reincarnation? I mean, I, I assume not given that the, the research hasn't progressed.
3: Yeah, we're, we're actually not, you know, we're not any really closer to understanding the mechanism of dreaming. And we're not even closer to understanding or coming to a, to a consensus on what consciousness is in science. There are, it's a huge debate in science whether or not consciousness is just a matter of programming in the brain, whether it's something different. There are constantly new definitions that come out, and some of them point to consciousness possibly existing outside the body or after death, and some of them basically are programming, so we're just kind of like meat robots. And it's really hard for us to progress beyond a certain point other than understanding what makes a person more psychic or why a person might have more of these dreams than someone else. And even there, we're, we're kind of bound into the dream recall thing. How many people actually having psychic dreams and not remembering them or not writing them down or not keeping track of them?
1: Right. So what would an indicator be of why someone or a reason rather, why someone would be having those experiences versus someone who's not having those experiences?
3: Well, we find typically that people who are creative, who have uh, have access to a kind of creative flow in one way, shape or other, are tend to be more psychic than others. Partly because they don't second guess themselves. And you can be creative in science. You can actually be creative in accounting, of course, if you want to want to go that way. Uh, but created creativity tests kind of go side by side with psychic ability. And so people who are in the creative arts, whether it's writing, art, or music, tend to be more psychic than Non-creative people, or people who aren't accessing that, we also find that there there's a new correlation that seems to be showing up, and we're really trying to look at that. And this is an area where there is some new research in it, with something called synesthesia, which is a perceptual cross-wiring of the senses. So you you are seeing smells, and you're hearing tastes. So there's kind of a partial cross-wiring or complete crosswiring. It's something people used to report all the time with LSD, also that you get a synesthesia experience. And about 4% of the population has some form of synesthesia. And it seems, at least from what we're looking at, that people who are very psychic may, have, may be in that 4% group. So we're looking at that also. There's other research that's going on. We are looking at research with mediums, spirit mediums, and finding that their brain activity is different when they are conversing with spirits versus doing a psychic reading versus having a conversation with a researcher.
1: What method are you using to assess the brain activity?
3: They're doing both EEG and fMRI.
1: Oh, ah, okay. Going back to the book, in the chapter Dreams of the Here yeah. and Now, uh, you describe the potential pitfalls of precognitive dreams, uh, particularly when you try to use them to prevent crimes from taking place, as an example. Can you elaborate a bit right. on that? And have you ever seen cases where that's happened, where someone has had a Uh, for uh, a veridical dream uh, of a crime that they have brought to authorities and implicated themselves?
3: Yeah, actually there was a woman a number of years ago, I believe it was back in the eighties who she was a nurse and she had a dream of a woman going off, uh, going off an embankment. I think it was in, believe it was in Colorado. And she ended up uh, finding helping them find the body because of her dreams, called them, told them she was arrested and ended up going to trial and there was oh. actually no con- no connection between her and the individual who was killed so and it wasn't it ended up being a murder case so the, this is something we see this on TV sometimes you know that psychics The phony psychic who goes into the police to try to get their reputation turns out to be a phony psychic, and they're the killer. They wanted to be close to the case. That doesn't really happen in real life. But fortunately, most people who call in their dreams or call in their psychic impressions tend to – well, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately. They usually get ignored. And it's the rarest case. That was absolutely a case where the police either were not interested in finding someone else or there was something corrupt going on in the police department at that point
1: talk about no good deed going unpunished. And yeah. just the thought of that puts me, I'm not that I ever have psychic dreams, but I've spoken to people who have gone to the police with what they believe is the location of a, of a particular body. They've gone and said, I think it's here. And I thought, man, if you're right, you're you're going to have some questions to answer.
3: Yeah. And you know, I think as long as people know that they're going to have to answer some questions, it's okay. I've worked with psychics. One of my co-authors, uh, Annette Martin, the late Annette Martin, used to work with police regularly for a couple decades and the first time she went in because she said she thinks she thought she knew where her body was she fortunately met with a police detective a homicide detective who did check her out i mean he didn't like grill her or anything but she led to the body uh, he did check her out to make sure there, were, there was no connection between her and the person whatsoever they could find and they were able to find the, the culprit also so it partly depends on the police officers themselves you know, if a person witnesses an event like we're somebody digging and dropping a body into a into the ground hole in the ground, uh, but it was too dark and they didn't see what the figure is, that person's still under suspicion that they might have been the killer themselves. Right. So even you know even with actually physically witnessing things, the police may still think you're a suspect or a person of interest until they can figure out that you're not. So that's important to know. The other thing is that sometimes the police can't act on information like that, uh, partly because of public outcry. You know, uh, if it's they're at a point where they're at the end of their rope, so to speak, they'll pretty much act on almost anything. But the average psychic who has an impression, whether it's a dream impression of something or an actual impression of it without any sort of track record with that police department offering their services is probably going to be ignored by most police departments, partly because the police are often afraid that that person will want to use that one case, even if they're right to kind of boost a reputation that they might hear back from the public, both the religious right and the other side that, you know, they're wasting public funds. That comes up quite a bit.
1: Right. I guess since we've already uh, broached the subject of remote viewing and, and now we're talking about the police, I'm curious, is that something that police are open to? Uh, is, I mean, obviously we've discussed cases where they, they've listened to someone calling in, but I know when I was yes. listening to say Noreen Renier talk or Pam Coronado, she appears to do this kind of work. I'm I'm surprised that that is uh, happening. So is, is is that happening and, and uh, how often?
3: I don't know about how often, I don't know if there are any stats right now, but there are our psychics who have worked, like Noreen, who have worked with police for a long time and Pam. Um, Nancy Meyer, who's in Pennsylvania, has, has a good track record, like I said, Annette Martin used to um, when she was alive. It just depends on whether or not they find a police officer up front or can su- support the police in a way that is not hampering the investigation. I mean, that's really the biggest biggest issue, is, is what they're doing going to hamper the investigation. There's a, a book, it's unfortunately out of print these days, called The Blue Sense by Arthur Lyon and my late colleague Marcello Truzzi, Trutzi was a skeptic uh, in terms of a true skeptic, a middle of the rotor. He really looked at both sides of the question. He looked at the research. He found extreme usefulness in many police psychics where psychics who were police, and he didn't believe in ESP. His opinion was that these people were wired differently, so then when they looked at the evidence, they saw something different in it, kind of like some of the quirky TV detectives like Monk. (laughs) Right. So his feeling was, okay, let them call themselves psychic. They're still useful. If they're useful, use them. If they're not useful, don't use them, regardless of how psychic they, they might or might not be. And that's really the best way to look at it. If you can find someone who is useful and work within their framework, that's the way to go.
1: Absolutely, and and I guess that gets us past the point of of labels, which is you know you yeah. you wonder if if you can avoid the label psychic, how much less inflammatory the use of that person would be.
3: It's got a lot of baggage to it, unfortunately. Um, when I first got into the field, actually after grad school, I worked at the American Society for Psychical Research in New York, and one of our research subjects, um, Alex Tanis, was a well-known psychic, on one level, but really not that well-known uh, compared to because he, he didn't really seek fame, but within the field he was incredibly well-known and. Alex, uh, whenever he was down from Maine, because he flew himself down from Maine every couple of weeks for a week's worth of research, we had someone from NYPD or Boston PD or FBI or all three or some other police department coming to meet with him during that week. And I I can't tell you, I I mean, there was never a week that I was working there that Alex was down that someone from law enforcement wasn't coming to consult with him. And none of the cases Alex worked on uh, revealed later on because they asked him to keep it quiet that he had provided good in, intel to them. You're afraid of the lashback from the public or from other people. I mean I knew another guy who was doing who was a remote viewer who actually who's who had been in military intelligence and he worked with a DA's office down in, in Southern California and they the way they did it, they actually were targeting some narcotics deals and some big dealings and he was able to pinpoint when and where some deals were going down, but rather than simply ordering the police to go, what they did was have this guy go out to a payphone back when there were payphones and phone in an anonymous tip that he saw some unusual activity at such and such an address. And he thought it had to do with drugs, never gave his name. And apparently, you know, they could act on an anonymous tip, but they couldn't act on a psychic tip.
1: Huh. That's a clever way of working around it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it worked out really well. They, they had a great arrest record because of that.
1: Again, on the subject of, of remote viewing, uh, in Dreaming Your Way Out of Your Body, you described the out-of-body mm-hmm. experience and, and the time it happened right. to you. Uh, would you mind telling me that story or telling our listeners that story and uh, whether or not you've had similar experiences since?
3: Sure. Well, first, the out-of-body experience is different than remote viewing um, in the same way that watching TV is different than actually going there, <laughs> the location. The concept of remote out-of-body is that some part of you Leaves your body. Um, first of all, I should mention that I was teaching adult ed courses in parapsychology besides working at the ASPR. And I got to know a few people in my classes, got to be friends with people in my classes, including a woman who was a psychic. Um, her daughters, one of whom was very psychic as well, uh, one was 18, one was 26. They lived about 50 miles from me, from where I was living. So I, I went to sleep one night and the next morning remembered a dream that I had left my body and. In, in my friend's house, my friend Dimitri's house. Now they, she and her daughter, were all late night people, so they stayed up till four in the morning. And this apparently was somewhere around two in the morning that I appeared in the bedroom where they were all. They were both fully clothed and watching TV, and they saw me appear and. Denita started asking me questions and said I looked a little sleepy and I must be sleeping. We had this whole conversation. Um the dog apparently recognized me, the whole thing. And I and that's all I remembered from the dream. But a couple of days later I get a call at the ASPR e. and he said, Were you ever gonna call me? And I said, About what? And she said about the dream you had because you were here. <laughs> and she said, she described the, the, the conversation, and it was pretty much my dream. So a few weeks later, probably a couple of weeks later, I was at a friend's bachelor party, and it was um, – this is the early 80s, and it was a very, very much a stag party. Um, the guys were – a lot of guys were watching a porn porno film, and I – to me, that just was kind of boring, sitting around with a bunch of guys doing that. That has always seemed so strange to me I that got, happened. So I went to the kitchen, <laughs> made myself a drink. Uh, and as I'm standing there, I was, I was so incredibly bored, frankly, that I suddenly felt like I was being pulled apart and saw myself in two places at once. I still felt I was in the kitchen, but I also felt that I was in Denita's living room. And she looked up from her book and said, So what's going on? We had this conversation. And the last thing I said to her was, Write it all down because I want to compare notes. And I was fairly conscious of this whole thing. So I felt myself coming back. I scrounged the kitchen, my friend's kitchen, for paper and something to write with, wrote it all down, and the next day I called her, and the first thing out of her mouth was, did you write down your, did you take notes? Did you write it all down? And so we compared notes, and it was the same conversation. But since then, no out-of-body experiences that I remember.
1: I, I, it seems to be tied to uh, I don't know what it seems to be tied to, but certainly haven't been that bored since. Although you know that's well, a that, very you know, particular a lot situation. Of my
3: experiences over the years have been tied to being bored, and uh, and actually, I, I tend to think that I, I've had a, a range of experiences, not necessarily anything consistent, because part of me wanted me to to really understand what each of these kinds of experiences was.
1: Right. Do you think the uh, sort of the growing uh, prominence of of digital devices is fragmenting attention and and maybe uh, hurting the chances of these kinds of things happening? Do you think that's in any way affecting the, um, I should say the, uh, I can't think of the word, just the frequency of occurrence of of psychic episodes or experiences?
3: Well, I, I can't, I wouldn't think that they would affect the frequency of any sort of psychic dreams because of course you're not, hopefully not texting in the middle of of the night, doing sleep texting or something like that.
1: (laughs) Right, but more out-of-body experiences, I guess, in in situations such as you described. Yeah, I think conscious
3: out-of-body experiences, except for the people who are are perhaps interested in that. And definitely, I think, having all these devices, and we're, we're flooded with so much information today compared to 20, 30 years ago, that our attention definitely is fragmented. There's no question about it. I mean, we certainly didn't need laws 30 years ago for distracted drivers for things. And we still had radios and cassette players and, you know, we had to eat in our cars and things. It just, there's a, there's so much more pulling at our attention today. I mean, I can't understand sometimes how kids can focus on anything. You know, forget ADHD. How can they focus on anything when they're being bombarded from all angles at all times with multi-devices? So I think it, it is going to impact some of the conscious psychic experiences unless what happens is... All this leads to more interconnectedness because technically the internet itself is connecting us in ways that we've never been connected before. And it very well may be that we go towards connecting with people in a different way or more frequently psychically because we feel like we need to have that connection. So it could actually go in that direction also.
1: I guess we'll just have to see. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, just for for fun, uh, I, I see on your website you're a professional chocolatier.
3: Yep, uh, I, got,
1: I got to say, I'm curious. How did that come about?
3: Well, uh, I'm a food guy and a wine guy, and when chocolate started getting good, started <laughs> uh, back in the late '90s, that was because of Schwarzenburger chocolate. Actually, here in the Bay Area, they actually, I think, in some respects, are responsible for the artisan chocolate movement. Um, I got very interested in that and how chocolate was made and such. And I, and over the through the early 2000s, I started really researching and reading because again, I, I'm a food guy. Um, one of my publishers was also into chocolate and we had, I sat her down, we had a chocolate tasting that I ran. And she told me that she suggested that I write a book eventually about this. And I started interviewing some chocolate makers. Um, I've been doing guided chocolate tasting presentations. I actually did one for the Monroe Institute last year. Uh, just take kind of like a wine tasting, but with chocolate, which is a lot of fun for me. And I've combined it also with some of my other, talking about ghosts and things as well. Right. Uh, but one of the chocolate makers suggested that I actually take a course in how to make chocolate just to kind of complete my understanding. And I did, and I really enjoyed it. And so consequently, since 2010, uh, I have occasionally been making a, a few different products Right now, I'm pretty much only doing special orders, but I'll be putting the menu up for that very soon on the Haunted by Chocolate website.
1: That is very cool. I've never met a, a chocolatier, so I, I was very curious.
3: So it's I, fun. Believe me, a lot of more people want to talk about chocolate than want to talk about the paranormal.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, that doesn't surprise me. So we're going uh, to wrap it up here. I wonder if you could uh, just tell us again about the courses you have coming up.
3: Sure. So starting on May, the week of May, that's next week, uh, there is an introduction to parapsychology, eight-week online course, which you can take for grade or just for fun at, through the Ryan Research Center, and it's rhine.org, and just go to the education link, and you'll see that course and a couple others, one of which is actually a course generally about dreams by my colleague, Ryan Hurd. I'm also starting uh, on the 18th, a four-week course, which you can take kind of like a, like a podcast. It's an audio-based course. You can either attend by phone. If you're here in the San Francisco Bay Area, then you can attend live. It is an investigations course. So it's ghost hunting, how to investigate the paranormal. So it's kind of uh, to up your game. Even if you are already a ghost hunter, you can learn how parapsychologists have been doing it and what we've actually, what we've actually learned over the last hundred or so years, which is a little different than what the ghost hunting TV shows. There'll, there'll be a um, psychic development course as part of the five pillars of Jediism training that's going going to be going up soon on the Church of Jediism's website, which launches on May the 4th. I'm a big part of that launch and uh, we're looking forward to being part of that. There's also a book coming out in November by the founder called Become the Force. So my website, just so you know, is mindreader.com, but it, it is down at the moment. Probably the best thing to find out on the things I'm doing is through Facebook, um, on my author page, it's Uh Please, if you go to my main page, if you find my page, please don't try to friend me. I'm at 5,000 limit, so go to my <laughs> author page instead. Twitter, at Prof Paranormal. That's P-R-O-F, Paranormal. And you can find me in a few other places on the web. Certainly, uh, I have a page that will be on the Church of Jedi Jedis and Sight, BecometheForce.com. You'll see the faculty will be listed there as of this Thursday.
1: The book is Psychic Dreaming, Dreamworking Reincarnation, Out-of-Body Experiences, and Clairvoyance by Lloyd Auerbach. Uh, Lloyd, thank you so much for your time.
3: You're very welcome.
2: Welcome back. Thanks, to Lloyd, for coming on our show.
1: That was great. Uh, funny enough, I w- met another author at a, an event on the weekend. Right. Uh, it was actually Barbara Smith. Yeah, oh, yes. Uh, author of many, many great BC ghost She's books. She's amazing. Not just BC, all over Canada. Of course, pardon yeah, me. yeah, yeah. But I mentioned that we were having Lloyd on the show, and she seemed surprised. Really? Yeah. So apparently we're pretty small time for a guy like <laughs> Lloyd. So that was, I'm really appreciative of the fact that he took time out of his day to actually waste half an hour on us. That was very kind of him. I, I'm sure he was, uh, you know, looking at the email and going, the who? <laughs> the ghost story gaze? No, that's not right.
2: <laughs> well, we have a good, we have a good title and a good logo. So that counts. It's so true. In so this true. business, that's what? 75% of the Absolutely. Right there? And you've got my golden personality
1: ringing out over the air. Yeah, that's, that's what we
2: have. That's a real asset.
1: Yeah. Um, have this anyway I need this back, <laughs> back to the book right yes we were talking during the break about the section on out-of-body experiences, which you found, you said you found particularly
2: interesting. I did. Part of it caught me off guard because he uses the term OBE, which in England, where I'm from, an OBE is an order of the British Empire, usually reserved to be given to aging authors and starlets who uh, are well past their prime. So you, you must be in line for that pretty soon. You know? Yeah, that's funny. Um, and, but he's talking about out-of-body experiences and he has, he actually put in, which is unusual for authors of this kind. He put in his own experience. And I, I'm just was gonna read it real quick and, and tell you about it. Sure. He says, I've had my own experience with this as well, which ties into dreams and OBEs. Back when I was teaching a course on parapsychology, I became friends with one of my students who claimed a real psychic ability. One morning, I woke up having had a very vivid dream of being at their house, which was about 40 miles away. In the dream, it was late at night, and I was talking with her and her daughter. A couple of days later, this same friend slash student asked me if I had a dream about visiting her house on that night in question, the night I actually had the dream. When I replied yes, which with a bit of puzzlement, she said that I'd actually shown up there at her house after midnight while she was in a conversation with her daughter. I was seen and even somehow touched by them, and their dog reacted to me as well. At the time, I was also home asleep, unless I'd started sleep driving. They were aware I was home asleep because I apparently had told them, and they asked me to leave. I promptly vanished, she said. So that's kind of weird and interesting that they both have this recollection of this event taking place, but it all happened while Lloyd was actually sleeping.
1: Yeah, that, that is really fascinating. That's uh, it, because
2: it's a vertical experience.
1: Right. Oh, you know, they, like, you know, like she verified it as well. Yes. I mean. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Now, um, didn't you have some kind of? You did something with um, remote viewing or something like that? Out of I, body?
1: I, I well, sort of. Um, I mean, I, I never went out of body, okay. uh, which is probably a good thing because I sleep naked. And <laughs> so we're all grateful. And I just wonder how that would go because, like, do, do you get some kind of sleep jumpsuit,
2: or do you just go wearing whatever you're wearing, <laughs> like, like in all the movies where they are condemned to wear the outfit they died in? Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. So if I ever have a heart sure. attack
1: in my sleep, it's going to be
2: a cold, chilly afterlife. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and no, unpleasant pleasant for everyone else. But, but I have uh, experimented a little bit with remote viewing and it was actually the section in the book uh, shortly after the OBE on bilocation. Okay. About being in two places at once uh, astrally oh. that I found interesting because in 2015, I went down to New Orleans for the International Remote Viewing Association Conference uh, because I had heard about them on the – I believe it was on the the Grimerica and Mysterious Universe podcast. Oh, cool! Yeah, so I had some time off and uh, some spare cash, so I went down to New Orleans to this conference, and they talked a lot about, or not talked a lot, but it, the, the subject of bilocation came up, where you physically feel as though you are in two places. So you're you're in your you're aware of your senses here, right? But you're also very aware of this other, you're also in this other place. And how do you get to the other place? Well, that's, I don't understand the mechanism. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing about remote viewing is, of course, when you go to the event, it's very much an accepted thing that it works. Oh, no, no okay. one ever questions yeah, it. You yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a given. Like, like going to church. It, it's exactly <laughs> like going to church. Although I should say, I tried remote viewing and it worked, which is much more than I can say for any of my church experiences. <laughs> Uh, Maybe
2: you were doing it wrong. Not enough faith. Father said I was doing it right. Oh, okay. Let's keep (laughs) moving. I'd probably take that out. No, I wouldn't. (laughs) I don't think we're big with
1: with the Catholic Church. Yeah, no, fair enough. I've been watching the young Pope, speaking of the Catholic Church, I've been watching the young Pope on HBO. What a great show. Really? Oh, man, yeah. Jude Law plays an American who somehow manages to end up as the, the youngest Pope in history. Cool. It's a good show. You should should totally check it out. It's not at all related to what we're talking about No, okay, anyway. Moving back to (laughs) remote viewing and bilocation, I went there and I listened to these people talk about it and I thought, well, this sounds very interesting, but I didn't understand the mechanism. So I thought I, I tried an experiment. And the first time I tried it actually was because of John Herlosky, who wrote The Sorcerer's, I think it's called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, about his time... Working under David Morehouse, who was uh, part of the CIA's Project Stargate program. Okay. Which is the program that was remote viewing. I mean, right. it, th- because remote viewing was a government program for about 20, 25 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It, went, it was first operated, I think, by the Defense Intelligence Agency, and then it kind of bounced around. It was a DOD at one point. Finally, in the mid-90s, it ended up at the CIA, and that's where it was killed. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, but it was called Project Stargate when it was finally terminated. Anyways, he gave an exercise, which is apparently a pretty common exercise with remote viewing. What they do is they... They give you a four-digit code. The code is just four random numbers. They have no connection to anything. And it is intentioned by the person setting the target, the target being the place you're meant to be remote viewing. So Herlovsky described the process as follows. You sit down somewhere quiet with a pad of paper and a pen. Close your eyes. Put pen to paper. Focus on the four numbers. And just let yourself drift. And Mm. start recording your impressions. Now, there there are more detailed ways to do this, and I, I did a lot of reading, and there are things about seeing the vortex, and the vortex takes you places, and, right. and all this magic school bus shit. I, I never got anywhere that stuff. Take the little blue pill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exa- I think that was the red pill. Oh. Little blue pill is something to which I do not wish to be privy. <laughs> Keep it on that side of the <laughs> table. Yeah, so I, I, I did this. He, he gave a four-digit code. I closed my eyes. And I started just letting my my hand move, and I, I was recording impressions. Now I didn't really see anything in my mind's eye, but I would get like shapes in darkness. If okay. that makes sense, like yeah. like those uh, you know those pin things you push your hand up to. And yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. So like that, but all black. Right. So I saw this wide open space. I saw a a football. What I thought was a football field. It was a sports stadium of some kind. I could hear people cheering. There was a, a tall structure, uh, a bridge behind it. A wide open space in front of it. Now, this was 2015, and all that year I had LA on the brain. Right. I'd always, I wanted, always wanted to go there. I kept thinking about going there. So I, I thought, well, the wide open space is the desert. The stadium is a staple center. I'm just thinking about LA. It's bullshit. And I, I put the paper away. Right. Then Hurlowski came back on a couple weeks later and gave the answer to what the target had been. It was right. the Eiffel Tower. And I thought, no, it definitely wasn't the Eiffel Tower. Portion Right. But a couple, how about a week later, I thought, I wonder if maybe the Eiffel Tower, you know, I, I went and had a look at it on, on Google Earth. And sure enough, if you look at it from a sort of a three-quarter angle to the side, yep. there's a sports stadium yep. right behind it or right next to it, a bridge right behind it, and there's a wide open
2: space in front of it. So you, let me get this straight. So you did remote viewing and you turned the wrong way? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: awesome. Or... I turned the right way for me. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: that's it. We'll mm. go with that. Yeah, we'll go with that.
1: So I was looking at. I was just seeing the, the location slightly off to the side, and I thought, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and sure, you could say that this was. You know, there are any number of places where you could draw those things together, but it, it was a number of points, and I, I feel reasonably secure in that. Yeah. So I, I tried a few experiments with a friend of mine. I would put these uh, cards in an envelope, I'd write a bunch of locations on cards, right. put them in an envelope and have the person shuffle the cards, pull one out and they'd give me a four digit code and I would try and try and do it. And? And it worked. Really? Yeah. Now the only thing is because I had written the cards. You knew what some of the numbers were going to be. No, I didn't know the numbers, right. but I knew what some of the cards were going to be. Right. So for example, one of them was Olympus Mons on, on, uh, Mars. Right. And immediately I said, it's cold, you know, but it's hot and I'm looking down and I see. But I just, I knew right away, Just something popped in my head. I went Olympus Mons. So I don't know if I, maybe I could just, because maybe there was something marking the paper. I right. knew which one it was. Right. And so I was then filling in the blanks. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But an interesting case of location, which is not exactly location, but it's my show. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Fight me, bro. And <laughs> no, I'm good. But uh, I had written on the... On this thing, uh, Tranquility Base. Yeah. And so this my friend pulled the card out, and in immediately in my head, I heard that that famous transmission, this is Tranquility Base here. Oh wow. But then I started seeing it went away, and I started seeing these weird street lamps. And I thought, well, I mean, this isn't Doc Savage. There are no street lamps on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Disappointingly. <laughs> I thought well, I didn't get it, and so I I, I told them I said I, I just don't know. I, I said it was tranquility base, and then I started getting these weird street lamps, and they said, "Well, I pulled the card out, and I thought that maybe you were somehow picking up on because of something on the back of these cards on yeah. what you'd written." Yeah. So I changed it to Port Angeles, Washington.
2: No. And Port
1: Angeles has those yeah, kind of weird street yeah. lights. Yeah. Wow. So it's. That's kind of cool. It's very cool, yeah. So, I, again, I don't know how it works. You know, they they still have not identified the mechanism, and of course, mainstream science refuses to admit that the mechanism exists. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's uh, it's fair enough because it's hard to believe. Yeah. And we cannot identify how it works, but the uh, the project started before it was closed by the uh, I think it was a, a defense subcommittee. Okay. Basically, had done thousands of these things, right? And their results were statistically better than chance. Wow! But it's really neat. I've never even heard of it. When they evaluated the project, when the government evaluated the project, they only they cherry picked about two or three hundred cases, something like that, right? And said, "All well, this is not statistically." So someone significant. wanted to kill it. Oh, absolutely. That's where it went. Yeah. Joe McMonigal, who is one of the original uh, or close to original Stargate viewers, yeah, he actually said he was told by one of these guys on committee that you are doing witchcraft. Oh,
2: wow. And you will burn in hell. So they thought it was going to get them in trouble. The government thought it would get them in trouble eventually.
1: No, I think what happened was the, the, the people running the defense community at that time yeah. were heavily evangelical. Oh. And so they thought they were quite literally being um,
2: being deceived by devils. Yeah, as one is in the
1: 1600s. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. The year 1995 by way of 1600. So the, yeah, the project was killed. Oh, and that's too bad. yeah, the, the committee's still around and, and some of these people are actually used by police to find bodies. Hmm. And it was, it was a really fascinating time. And again, it was just like that and, and so many other things in Lloyd's book. You're just struck by how mu- little we know about the brain.
2: Well, yeah, and I I mean, I, I liked reading the book. It it was certainly interesting. I have never had a precognitive dream. Um, I don't think I've ever had an out of body dream. Um, one thing I have found that I can do, which is weird, uh, is interpret dreams. Really? Yeah. And I've done that since I was a teenager. And and people would tell me dreams and I would very quickly and very clearly know what it was about. Not in a psych- psychological way, um, more in what was going on in their life or even what would happen to them. Really? Yeah. I When I was in my 20s, um, a woman came to me and, and told me a dream. And she was in her 30s at the time. And I knew her greatest wish ultimately was to be married. Right. Um, but, Sucker. Yeah. But the dream she told me, I could very clearly see, like crystal clear, that that was never going to happen. Oh. And um, That's a bummer. Yeah. And it was the one and only time I've ever... fudged um (laughs) the answer back and i really yeah i i said it had more to do with the guy she was currently interested in right um and i didn't tell her because what good would that do i i guess and and i thought no this isn't right and she's now in her mid-50s and has still not had any kind of long-term relationship but yeah. Other than that, though, you know, if you got a dream for me, let me know. I'll, I'll give it a shot. You but keep telling me not to do that. <laughs> well, I don't want to hear your dreams. They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, you
1: were telling me that you sent the or your publicist, story. Uh, the Predator. Yes. Yeah, the Predator. I can't wait to meet. Story is so sweet. She sent the episode where I interview you to one of the reps for your book. Yes. And they were shocked. <laughs> they were
2: legitimately concerned that you had called her The
1: Predator. Not only that, but they were
2: shocked by some of the other humor, particularly the one about me and Barb on the bearskin rug. Yeah, well... I mean, I'm used to it from you now, so it doesn't really shock me. It's like people who work in a slaughterhouse, they just become, <laughs> they become immune to blood and death. But, um, yeah, I guess for outside people who still have sensitivities. Yeah. Sometimes I forget other people hear these yeah. things. <laughs> that explains a lot. Right? Right.
1: I remember I was listening to, uh, might have been the Paranormal Podcast a while back, and uh, they had a, they had a fellow on who interpreted dreams. And I really felt for the guy because— No one ever calls in with interesting dreams. Right. There was one woman who called in with the most prosaic brain dead dream. (laughs) She said, my husband's job recently forced us to move and... I keep having dreams – move to Egypt. Right. And I keep having dreams about being in a car that's moving too fast and I, I have no control over it and I can't slow it down. And it's, oh, come it's, on. Right?
2: I mean, come like she on. she just interpreted her own dreams. Yeah, idiot. right?
1: Just just hang up the phone. <laughs> and shoot yourself. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said it. <laughs> it's a nice break. But yeah, right? It's just, uh, shut up. You yeah. know what this means. Yeah. You want us to tell you that your life doesn't suck. Well, I hate to break it to you, sweetheart. Yeah. You're, it does. <laughs> you're moving to Egypt. Yep, it's not gonna it. be not going to be easy for you. I've been there. You couldn't pay me to live there. No. No. I mean, the people were fairly nice. I mean, we weren't robbed there. We were robbed in Morocco. Oh, perfect. Twice. <laughs> I'm going to go on record and say, Morocco. <laughs> oh, now you've alienated all our Moroccan listeners. Thankfully, there are none. No, I know. Because they're you know. too busy robbing tourists. <laughs> Oh, man, Morocco. I, I got a stomach parasite in Morocco. Oh. Yeah, yeah. My cousin ended up in a Egyptian hospital because of Morocco. Oh, that's not good. So. Morocco? No. Morocco, you're on blast. It's it's on the no-blast. You blast suck. List. <laughs> and it, what in God's name was I talking about? Um, no one ever knows. Oh, man. Right, 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 right. Dreams. Interpreting dreams. Yes. Right. I tend to have very... Very bizarre dreams, you know? And well, I shouldn't say that. I, I have very annoying prosaic dreams and then I have very bizarre dreams. Right. And I have actually had a handful of what I guess you could call precognitive dreams. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, I don't know, I don't know why or how or how it all makes any sense, but I think there's a, a trio, maybe four dreams. They're all kind of a piece that happened years apart. But all sort of fit together like some kind of jigsaw puzzle. But I, I don't know what that puzzle says or what it means. Right. So the first one happened years ago. I was in the dream. I was on a train. That train is going through an industrial town somewhere. Okay. I fall off the train and I don't know where I am. I'm wandering around this, this industrial area. There's some big steel building. But eventually at night comes and something starts chasing me through this 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 industrial yard. Yeah. The last thing I remember seeing before I woke up was a white office door going into the office of one of these, uh, industrial spots, um, with a little window in the middle with, uh, the reinforced glass. Yeah. There was a naked bulb above the door. Right. I was just about to go inside. I woke up. The next thing I remember is I heard the word Edgley in my head. Okay. So I, I Google Edgley a while later and it's, uh, it's actually a small town in Pennsylvania on the railroad. Oh wow! Yeah. So I, I, at the time, I looked it up on Google Street View, and believe it or not, the entire area along the train tracks was fogged out on Google Street View. No, it was. Oh, weird. So I always said to myself, oh, "I'm ever, I'm gonna go to Edgley. I'm gonna, yeah.
2: you know, make a point of going there." As one does about yeah. Edgley. Yeah. <laughs> when,
1: you, when, you, when you have a weird dream calling you to a, a, a place where you're being chased by a monster, you should go to that place. No, it's, you should not go to that place because that's where you will meet certain death. Have you not watched any movies? I've watched a lot of them, but I sleep a lot. Oh, okay. Man, I, this would have saved me a lot of trouble. You <laughs> should have talked to me first. I've been to all three of these places. Wow. And I, again, I, I did end up going there. And back in 2014, I helped a friend move from Austin, Texas to Boston, Massachusetts. Right. And we went through Pennsylvania. Went through Edgley. And now, Edgley is a, just a little suburb across, from, across the highway from Bristol, Pennsylvania. But it's right on the river. There's a huge bridge. And what's interesting about that is another dream I had was I was sitting in a, in a small home. I was looking at a man standing in the doorway. It was like I was his wife. Okay. And there was the the, the paneling was all Wayne Scotting, I know. And I was telling him to pick up batteries right. on the way back from his jog. And so he he runs out of the house and jogging. Now, it, my point of view shifted to following him as he jogged. Right. And I heard Peter Gabriel Salisbury Hill. Okay. <laughs> I didn't even know the name of it at the time. I actually no. had to Google the lyrics when I woke up. Right. But- as he's jogging away from the house, I saw this wide river with a big bridge. And now when I, of course, I got to Edgeley, it, it wasn't exactly the same, but it was very close. Uh, the next set of the next dream I had was about a, well, I used to have this actually series of dreams about going to a school. Okay, That school was, it was made of brick. And of course, I, I'm, where I'm from, we don't have brick no, schools. No, it's all wood, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, it was a brick schoolhouse. And in the back, there was a courtyard Hemmed in on three sides by the school. Right. The courtyard had, uh, in the dream, that would have hopscotch and basketball hoop. And uh, I, again, I didn't know anywhere that looked like this. Yeah. Until one day I was watching a news report on Maryland and I saw brick buildings and I thought, oh, I, I bet it's an East Coast place. Didn't think much more about it than that until on that same trip where I went to Edgley. We went to go check out Centralia, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Centralia, Pennsylvania. Yes, of course, the one with the underground fires. Yeah, yeah, it's been burning underneath it for 50 years. While leaving Centralia, which I don't recommend anyone go to, just let that poor place die. Right. We went under this overpass and all of a sudden I, I was seized with this feeling where I should turn right. Okay. So I hung a right, went up a small hill and what's standing there but a brick schoolhouse. So I parked the car, I said to my friend, hold on, went all the way around back. And there's a courtyard thro- surrounded on three sides by the school. Oh, wow. And uh, it didn't look like my dream, but it was there. And I thought, well, that's coincidental. I went and looked at the front of the school and it says established 2000. I thought, well, that's obviously not right. Right. However, I just found out two days ago, I had some spare time. I went looking through Google. Right. That school was built in 1929. It oh, wow. has been renovated and rebuilt over the course of years. But that original building had a, a courtyard in the middle. And was surrounded on three sides by school. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. So then the third dream I had, which turned out to be accurate, was, again, several years ago, before I had any interest in in, in ghosts, it was about a haunted river. And in the dream, there's a river where people can hear the sounds of battle and uh, they would find sometimes these musket balls in the grass. And the river was kind of like a a really windy river with lots of green around it. And, again, the, the dream kind of went on from there, but... I, I sort of always remembered the river. Now, uh, last year, I helped m- the same friend move from New York City to Oakland. Yeah. And my job on these trips is to find the place, spooky places to eat. He finds food. Right. I find spooky places right. to hang out. Right. And uh, so I, I thought, wow, haunted river. Oh, geez, I wonder if there's any place because I want to go check out Gettysburg. Right. And then I thought, well, let's let's check out haunted rivers. So I Google haunted rivers Pennsylvania because we'd be driving through Pennsylvania. And sure enough, there's this stretch of the Brandywine River where, along Route 100, where a, the, I think the Battle of Chad's Ford took place. And according to some people who live in the area, you can still hear. The, the fight, the, the battle. Fu- the battle happening. I've heard of that, yeah. And sometimes you see soldiers marching along the, the, the side of the road. Wow. So we stayed the night in uh, Westchester, which is nearby to Chad's Ford, because Chad's Ford was expensive. And uh, <laughs> we drove that road at about three in the morning. Nothing. It was spooky, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, but nothing. Yeah. Um. So the, the next morning we were just about to leave and I said to my friend, do you mind if we drive that road again in the daytime? And he said, yeah, sure, I don't care. So he drove, I sat in the passenger seat and... All of a sudden, I felt this kinship with the place, like I like I knew it somehow. Right. And, of course, it didn't make any sense because I'd never been there before. And so, at one point, I asked my friend if we could pull over uh, by the side of the road. We did. Now, I couldn't see the river because it was behind a fence and then behind some trees. Mm-hmm. But as I stood there next to the fence looking onto the forest behind which was the river, I had this strange sensation and completely unbidden. I heard this voice say in my head, well, boys, I'm back. And I thought, where'd that come from? So, and I I said to myself, why didn't I recognize this in the daytime or at night? And then again, same voice because we weren't here at night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we got in the car my friend wanted to go to the, I think it's Andrew Wyeth. He's a painter. Right. Who's famous for being from that area. Yeah. So we went to his studio. There's an art museum there. And as we got there, the, the, the museum is right on the Brandywine and there's a bunch of kids there. That's where kids, they sell tickets for kids to go tubing. They tube down the river. Right. And again, we parked the car and I'm watching these kids go with and bring their tubes to the, the side of the river. And this voice popped up in my head again and said, we bled in that river so they could fucking play on it. Wow. And another voice kind of popped in and said, "Yeah, but that was the whole point." Oh, wow. And it just—I don't know—I just felt complete in this weird way. Yeah, yeah. And I really wanted to walk the bank of the river, but we, after doing the museum, we didn't have time, mm-hmm. so we we had to boogie. But I would love to go back there. And it's just this you know, say these three seemingly unconnected dreams. That all connected to a place I had never been before or yeah. even really thought about. That you knew. Yeah. Cool. So go figure. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Now let's talk about the other dream I had about uh, those two Russian girls. Okay. No, 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 no. We're done. We're good. You We're said good. you'd interpret my dreams. No, I'm not interpreting those, you pig. Killjoy. <laughs> all right. So that's going to wrap it up for us tonight. Uh, as always, thank you for tuning in. Mm-hmm. We hit a milestone last week. We have had 2,000 total downloads for seven episodes so far. That's amazing. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'm no podcastologist, but (laughs) that seems like pretty good numbers for a couple of bozos on a new show. Yeah. No. And even more amazing than that is the range of places where people are downloading. I couldn't believe that. I know. It was crazy. Yeah. The the service we use tracks locations and
1: uh, we are worldwide, man. Us and Pitbull.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That wasn't funny five years ago when Pitbull was relevant.
1: How do you even know who that is? Because I'm hip. I listen to FM radio. You fell asleep in the rest home, in front of the rest home television after someone's grandson had come visit?
2: (laughs) No, I read Billboard on my screen while you're talking. Oh, okay. You brought that on yourself, Mr. Never Read a Book. I guess I did. (laughs) Anyways, we thought we'd take a
1: minute to say hi to those people listening to us across the world just because, hey, that seems pretty cool to me absolutely so uh hello belfast beautiful city i saw down play there at the university back in 2008
2: phil anselmo was very drunk no one would give him weed it was really funny (laughs) hello moscow i'm guessing that must be peter who does the music for our show and his friends
1: i can only imagine uh hello los angeles i love you too and i hope to get back there soon you you just got to fix that whole president thing
2: (laughs) hi portland keep on keeping it weird we love your donuts uh, well, if I could still eat donuts, I would. Well, I love the donuts. Isn't that nice for you? It is. I like
1: the strip clubs where you can get food. I think that's <laughs> neat. <laughs> Just keep going. Okay. Assalamualaikum, Dubai. <laughs> I, I don't know why in God's name anyone in Dubai is listening to us, but we're sure happy you
2: are. Well, there's a number of them. So bless their hearts. Yeah, yeah. Um, hello, Buffalo, Missouri. We all know that's the real home of the Buffalo chicken wing. <laughs> hello, Levine, Arizona, where the town motto is, we're pretty close to Phoenix. Hello, Ibsham UK. You probably all drink tea. I wouldn't know because I don't know anything about you. We can fix that, though. Call me. Yeah. <sighs> Your wife still doesn't listen to the podcast, does she? No, she does not. <laughs> Uh,
1: finally, uh, there's a lot more, but we're, we're going to wrap it up here. But say, uh, we want to say hello to Kamloops, Canada, home to my cousin and long suffering travel companion, Mike, along with the Drunken and a Graveyard crew, uh, who you should check out at drunkenagraveyard.com. So don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of this podcast as an open relationship without the possibility of angry recrimination. <laughs> Big thanks, of course, to Lloyd Auerbach for taking the time to chat with us. His book, Psychic Dreaming, can be found wherever fine books
2: are sold. Our intro was composed and performed by Pizzanto Music, and our bumper music was written and performed by Will Forbus Music. You can find both of those fine fellows on SoundCloud via the link in our show notes. And and Will, we really hope to be able to pay you soon. Yes. I
1: mean, he's been really good about letting us use his music <laughs> literally for nothing, uh, but but we do eventually
2: want to pay him money. Once we are making some money. That would be nice. That would yeah, be yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh,
1: if you're in the greater Victoria area, don't forget to come check out Ian's book signing at Bolin Books at the Hillside Mall on Tuesday, May 9th at 7pm. Mm-hmm. you can buy a book listen to a reading and watch me and his publicist engage in mortal combat as she tries to take my skull back to her home planet as a trophy
2: <laughs> Tori is not going to be taking anyone's
1: skull you say that no <laughs> all right folks Like I say we'll be back in 2 weeks so until then take care and uh, be good to one another I was having an out-of-body experience, your honor. That's why I was in that locker room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm about to have an in-my-body experience in prison. Exactly. (laughs) Make new friends.
2: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I'm going to cut that out.